I like to begin uh, the sermons with questions. So let me begin by asking, what, what troubles you? Uh, it's already been mentioned that Christmas, even though it's so beautiful on the surface with all the lights and decorations, it's a time when actually our, our deepest pains and loneliness are exacerbated. Uh, perhaps some of us are, it's the first Christmas without a loved one, or it, it, year end something happened at work. And so what troubles you? We all have troubles. What makes you anxious? This past week, uh, and to no, one, uh, to no one's fault, uh, my email wasn't working. And I emotionally, mentally felt crippled. And in that moment, I, I realized, okay, there's something going on here. You're, you might be a little too attached to your identity to work, the fact that you can't send out work emails. And that left, left me anxious. What keeps you awake at night? The flip side. Oftentimes, our joys and, and what makes us glad and happy, our treasures, are just the other side of the same coin of our anxieties. What gives you exceeding joy? And when we can't have that joy in our lives, what we look to and what we consider our treasure in life, it leaves us anxious, leaves us awake. Now, it's important to be able to courageously answer these questions at times in our lives because they're all matters of the heart. And if we're going to be whole, strong human beings, we need to have a good handle on our hearts. The biblical understanding of heart is not just our emotions, like Valentine's and what our Western culture makes it out to be, but the biblical understanding of heart is the sum of, of all our thoughts, our thinking, the way we think about the world, our affections, uh, and specifically what we let ourselves become emotionally attached to, and our will, our resolve. God himself cares so much about the heart because we believe he created our hearts. But he not only cares about our hearts, but he has required something of us in regards to our hearts. Simply put, he wants your heart. He wants mine. He wants our hearts. And again, the sum of all our, where our thoughts go to, where our, our emotional attachments are, our desires and our will, our resolve. Just to show you quickly from Scripture um, how he spells this out very uh, clearly. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is the fifth book of the law. God cannot spell out more clearly what he requires of us. And in chapter 6, in verse 5, he says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Those are synonyms there. And with all your might. Again, a synonym. Might there is a, is a word for our resolve, our will. So much so, in verse 6 he continues, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. God was envisioning a time when his people are so close in relationship with him, with the Father, that the hearts are one, that his, his will, his morals, his ways are, are somehow just branded onto our hearts. He goes on to say in verse 8, so much so that this is supposed to be a part of our heart. You shall bind these words as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Meaning, he is supposed to be on our hearts. And, and he, we're meant to go about our every day with a consciousness of God's presence and love in our lives. Jumping forward to chapter 10, he spells it out even more clearly. In verse 12, and now Israel... And for you and me, for Christ's followers today, this is, we can understand this as 
The church being addressed. And now, church of Christ, what does the Lord require of you? To fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love and to serve the Lord your God. With what? With all your heart and with all your soul. And to give you a very Christmassy analogy here, I'm being sarcastic, in verse 16, so much so, he gives this, this, this ritual, but the purpose of the ritual was to be a metaphor. In verse 16, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. I waited for the kids to leave to show you this verse. <laughs> but this is a metaphor that our hearts, there's something supposed to be set apart in our hearts, something even cut off in our hearts, a, a bit of dying to ourselves in our hearts, that we become gods, that all our heart is His. And, and what's the definition of giving our hearts to Him? To no longer be stubborn. Now, this is what God the Father has required. And if you're like me, then I fail every day at loving the Lord my God with all my heart. But here's the good news. The good news of the cross, what this baby Jesus came to this earth to do. He was born to die. So the good news of the cross and Christmas is that Jesus loved God with all his heart to the point of humbly coming to earth. I don't know what the conversation went like in the heavenlies before Christ was very God, very God, before he took on human flesh. I don't know the exchange and the conversation that went on between the, the triune God, but certainly at some point there was a humbling, a willing to leave his glories, his throne in heaven, and to be found weak in helpless form as a babe. And he loved God and obedience with all his heart to the point of humbly coming to earth. And why? To cancel the debt of our wandering hearts. But the good news is not just of the cross. The gospel is the cross and the empty tomb, the resurrection. So what's the good news of the resurrection of Christ? As you fast forward this life of this baby Jesus to the end, he rose from the dead. And so the good news of the empty tomb is that just as God the Father vindicated Jesus' wholehearted love, when Jesus canceled the debt for our wandering hearts and died on the cross because, as a consequence of our sins, God the Father validated Jesus, vindicated him, and said, you certainly have lived a sinless life with all your heart and obedience to me, and so I'm going to... I'm going to justify you. I'm going to vindicate you. And so he raised him from the dead. And so too, the good news now is our affection for Christ is worth it. Though we stumble at loving God with all our heart, as we place our faith in Christ and walk with him day by day, step by step, and, and learning to experience Christ and make Christ our deepest affection to Keep walking in that difficult, stumbling journey. It's worth it. So as we come to Matthew 2, today's passage, how, how does this passage call us to love God wholeheartedly by faith in Jesus? If you're the type who appreciates uh, an outline or want to take notes, it's there in your bulletin. You can follow along. But the first point is this. King and Queen. To every person here, I address you right now as king and queen. That is 
your ultimate identity, your, your, your final identity. When God created this world, and we'll see it here where it comes out, I'll show you in a moment from the passage, but all of us were created as little kings and queens to co-reign with God. He put us as vassals, as deputies on this earth to steward his creation, to subdue it, to reign over it. And now in Christ, when you place your faith in Christ, and we're welcomed into eternity. Scripture says that we will co-reign with Christ. But king and queen, pay attention to your affections. So we pick up Matthew's narrative of Jesus. Now this is after Jesus' birth, but nevertheless included in the whole story of his birth. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, is a quick tangent, that's Matthew locating this event in history that is corroborated by even non-Jewish historians. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We'll get to the wise men in the second point. But here are one set of characters, and now they're looking for this king, and so, and they continue to explain, for we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So first, king and queen, don't kid yourself. We are all worshiping something or someone this morning. We are. What's worship? Worship can be explained as just worth-ship. Whatever we find worthwhile in our lives, we will end up worshiping. And worship certainly has to do with our affections, where our emotions go to, our desires go to. We become affectionate towards what is worthwhile to me. This morning, uh, Linda's and, and my anniversary is December 30th, so um, always around Christmas, we're, we're thinking about just our story and our marriage as well. And, and so I was just reminiscing, reminiscing of our dating days, and then it's just a clear, uh, Example, just an analogy, if you will. Linda, at one point, began to become worthwhile to me. She started to appear beautiful to me. And so my affections, my emotions began to attach to her. And probably, I have to confess that some of them are probably worshiping her as well. But I, I hope you just see what I'm trying to explain. When something becomes worthwhile, we begin to attach our affections to it, our emotions to that person or thing, and then we can begin to worship that person or thing. Now, affections, they can grow to become something that animates us, that gives us life, or they can become addictions. If, if it's a substance or something unhealthy, addictions basically give you one step of life forward, because as we experience whatever that addiction is, we experience some sense of life, but then it always takes you two steps of life backwards. It sucks life out of you. But nevertheless, at some point, our affection will become attached to that person or thing. So it can be a healthy affection that animates us, or it can become an unhealthy addiction that sucks the life out of us. And so we see here these wise men searching for this king because they understand that their life, they've been created, their heart has been created to worship. Verse 3, when Herod the king, now we see the king, the literal king, Herod, heard this, he was troubled. Herod goes down in infamy in history. He was a cruel king. He was a king 
and who was so lusting after power and authoritarian that he was willing to uh, execute a, a genocide of all the two-year-old baby boys because he felt so threatened by the possibility of another king in competition with him. And so this king, this infamous king, he was troubled. Notice that Matthew takes the time to explain what's going on with an emotion. He's describing, he's taking pains to describe Herod's affections. He was troubled, it literally means anxious, and all Jerusalem with him. So king and queen, pay attention to your emotions day to day. Part of, just simply put, put Christianity aside, put faith aside, just growing as a human being is growing better and better at being aware of what's going on inside of us. Being able to see the emotions that come out, what circumstances and triggers and so forth elicit certain reactions for better and worse. But pay attention to your emotions. Matthew certainly wants us to pay attention to Herod's anxiety here. And his anxiety, how does it evolve? He was so anxious and troubled that he assembled all the chief priests and scribes and the people. These were basically the, the people who were supposed to be the best at understanding the scriptures, the holy book. And he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah, which for the people of Israel meant king. God's ultimate final king of all kings. And there was a prophecy, and so Herod felt threatened. He was no friend of God. Even as a, as a king of the people of Israel, he was willing to challenge God's appointed king. And so king and queen, what or whom do you feel threatened by in life? As you go to work, is there a certain co-worker that threatens you? It's a sign that perhaps you attached your affections towards a certain position or promotion. Or whatever circumstance it may be, maybe it's a certain activity, a rest, that you just need this thing in your life. What or whom are you threatened by? But more importantly, especially this Christmas Sunday, King and Queen, does Christ threaten you? Second, wise one, keep searching for your Christ until you find exceedingly great joy. And we see this in the second half of uh, today's scripture. And we take a cue from the wise men. Picking up in verse 9, after listening to the king, so they had arrived in Jerusalem, and the king got word that there were these wise men searching for the Christ, the Messiah, his, King Herod's competition. And he put on an act. Oh, I want to worship this king too, but his secret plan was to assassinate this king. And he sent them off their way. If you find them, they come back to me. So after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose. And so just as people of the sea and the waters use the stars to navigate here, the wise men were navigating. And we don't know. Matthew doesn't spell out. Did these wise men have the scriptures as well? How do they know to follow a certain star? Matthew doesn't spell it out. 
But certainly one application here is that God perhaps was speaking to these wise men through creation, through the stars, the night sky. And so to kings and queens, this is uh, an extemporaneous point here, even through creation, what Christians call general revelation, through the beauty of the sunset, through the, the culture's mores of celebrating Christmas, through so many signs in our universe, perhaps God is reaching out to you. And they kept searching, 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 and notice Matthew's description until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So be wise. Let's take a cue from these wise men. Be wise and search relentlessly for a good king. That's one way to summarize the meaning of life for all of us. We might not articulate it this way, but we are searching for some superior authority, some ultimate person or thing in our lives that we can just trust and find our happiness in. And this is what the wise men were doing. And they were being led by God through the Spirit, through creation, until they were able to find their rest, even as the star rested over the place where the child was. Now notice their response. And again, I want you to notice the language of affections, emotions. When they saw the star, they rejoiced. Now Matthew makes double point. In fact, no, quadruple point. They rejoiced exceedingly. He could have ended there with great joy. It was like me trying to say to the kids, the gift that I really, 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 really wanted. And so here, I want to apply this to our lives and say, be wise and search for an indestructible joy. You can find it. It is in life. It is available. It is out there. Why? Because it's in the person, Jesus Christ, that God sent. And it is indestructible. Indestructible. Matthew continues their response. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And so now this is where the rubber meets the road. Be wise, king and queen. Be wise. Humble yourself. And worship Christ as king. That's what we're called to do. That's what Christmas is all about. It's a deep, important, annual reminder. And really, we're meant to carry Christmas. Jesus' incarnation his humiliation coming down from this earth. We're meant to carry that in our hearts every day. But especially in this time when our culture is willing to still celebrate the season of Christmas. At this time, be reminded profoundly to wisdom is humbling ourselves before this Jesus. And seeing that he is worthwhile. He is worth it. And letting our affections be drawn to him, letting our emotions be attached to him. What calmed me down this week when my email was, was failing me was literally just reflecting on the Christmas story and just remembering that Christ is king of all kings and he humbled himself. And there's a verse that says that he experienced every one of our weaknesses. Now I said, this is my little prayer, Jesus. I don't think there was email around your time. 
but I know that you're still meant to be my peace and my identity is in you. And I humbled myself and I let my affections draw to Christ to attach to him to be my peace and to worship him again as king. What's the response? Then, verse 11 continues, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts. Be wise and spend your treasures on Christ. That's how we're meant to walk through this journey of life. For all the success that we have, for all the intellect, for all the skills and, and competencies, for all our resources, for all our time and touch and energy, everything that we have been blessed with. Notice the wise men here, their journey, it wasn't driven by these gifts that they were to present, the gold, earth, frankincense. That would be the equivalent to most of our lives. We're driven by wanting that next possession, wanting that promotion, wanting that house, wanting that accolade, whatever it may be. But here, for the wise men, no, these gifts were just something they were stewarding along their journey, and the whole point of it was for them to arrive at the feet of Jesus, to fall in worship, and because of exceedingly great joy and rejoicing, naturally, they just gave to Christ. There was a worship, an overflowing of wanting to bless the Lord with ultimately was really given to them by God in the first place. Now here's a story by one of my favorite preachers of old, the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. And he tells a story of a king in his kingdom. And there was this farmer, this pure-hearted farmer, and he was farming, and he came upon in his harvest the largest carrot that he could have ever grown. And he loved this king with a pure heart. And so he took this carrot to his king and said, King, I've grown this carrot and I offer it to you as a gift. And the king, discerning his heart, just the pureness and sincerity of the farmer's heart, gave him even more lands to farm and to become, in a sense, the farmer of his kingdom. Now there's a nobleman who saw what was going on and his mind started calculating and turning. And so he went to a stable, and he brought to the king this great black stallion and said, Oh, king, here is a gift for you, the best of my steed. And the king, discerning his heart, said, I know what you just saw. You see, the farmer, he grew that carrot, and he gave it truly for me. But you, you're giving this horse to yourself, hoping that you can just profit and, and get more out of it selfishly. See, that, that story encompasses in similar ways what's going on here with the wise men and, and how we are meant to be wise. As we journey through life, is this life just the purpose of it just to accrue all these things for us. And, and as Christ followers, if you consider yourself a Christ follower today, is our devotion, our prayers, our, our acts of service, our good works, somewhere in our hearts, where is our affection truly? Is it 
for Jesus purely because he has loved us with a lavish grace or is because we're trying to somehow manipulate the arm of God to get more blessings. To begin to wrap it up then, why does my heart so easily wander? Why do I have so many competing affections? Why? Well, I think the answer in part comes as we answer the question, what's the cure? But before we get to the cure, I want to exhort you, please reflect on your own heart. Make good use of this season of Christmas. Don't just, all the cultural mores and rituals and traditions, they're good, they're good, they're good. Getting together with family is good. Exchanging gifts is good. But please take a moment to get behind, to get underneath all that and get to the most beautiful, true meaning which we find in our cure. And the cure ironically comes in the Old Testament prophecy that Herod looked to, that his chief scribes and, and priests pointed him to, but they missed the big picture. Kudos to them to know where the prophecy of where the Messiah, the Christ, would be born. But Bible reading 101, they didn't read it in context. When we read our Bibles, we're meant to read verses in context. To see the verses that precede and proceed. And so here are the verses that they pointed to Herod. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. And so they knew that the location was Bethlehem. But what they had to read on was, we're not going to read the whole section was to eventually get to verse 4 and 5, and especially 5. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. This is speaking of Christ. In the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Our hearts wander because we're searching for some semblance of peace. When we find addictions in our life, when we find things that animate us in the life because we've let our affections become attached to those things, because we're looking for things to be attracted to that are worthwhile in life, it's because ultimately we want some peace. But what the gospel proclaims is that Jesus is our peace. God in his mind-blowing wisdom and just the way he works, even the fact that he wrapped up his peace in a little baby. I don't know about you. Of course, there are days, especially if you talk to newborn, uh, new parents, sometimes babies are less peace because of the crying, but in those moments when they're not crying and you're just holding them, even that little physical ball of flesh is some, one of the most profound experiences of peace. And so even Jesus coming, starting his existence here on earth in the form of babe, that that was God's wisdom. Even that is a picture of peace, this baby Jesus. But we know that Jesus, he would not only be a babe, but he would grow. He would experience every weakness that we do as human beings. 
be tempted and yet not sin to the point of now being, becoming public, going public with his ministry and for three years teaching and showing signs of the kingdom and then to obey. How has Jesus fulfilled what I can't? How does he become my peace? Because he loved God the Father with all his heart. He was sinless to the point of death on the cross for the forgiveness of sins of all the world through all history for those who have placed their faith in him. That's how Jesus is my peace. And when we celebrate Christmas, this newborn babe, he is meant to be a king of our affections, to give us peace, the prince of peace. And so my hope for you today, not only today, but all your years to come, every Christmas, you'd be so deeply reminded that Jesus is your newborn king of your affections, who gives you peace, no matter what high you are celebrating, that Jesus is even better than your victories, and especially if you're going through a low. He is your indestructible joy and permanent peace.